Hey everybody, welcome to episode 98 of the Metal Detecting Show podcast. My name is Kieran, and I have been metal detecting now for nearly 30 years. This week, I celebrate the podcast's second birthday with a quick look back at some of the highlights of this year. Happy birthday to you! Hey everybody, before we start, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and I hope you enjoyed the episode this week. If you want to support the show, there are many options available in the links in the episode notes below. If you want to interact with me and the show, that information's in there too. But most importantly, if you like this content and would like more, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Hey everybody, I hope you had a great week this week and a happy St. Patrick's Day to you all. I'm sitting here in my little office at home recovering from a an exuberant celebration yesterday is all I can say. So you can probably hear it in my voice. There was a lot of crack, August Kjol, going on in the pub yesterday. But good times, but also good times to celebrate. The podcast is two years old this week. And because it's two years old, I wanted to give a little bit of an update on, on where we are as a podcast right now from a listenership point of view, but also go over three of the highlights or our most popular episodes from the last year. So, like I said, the podcast is two years old, but if we look at the metrics over the year, you know, we can see we've hit 52,000 downloads, which is brilliant for a podcast. We're on episode 98, obviously, this is episode 98, and we're averaging about 1,300 listeners per week, which is really good for a podcast of our size. So, like I said last week, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the podcast, and I hope you enjoyed a couple of highlights that I'm going to go through here now in a minute. So starting with the episode called Search Patterns and the Probability of Detection. This was a very successful episode, but I also got to say bastards and bastard search over and over again in the episode. So I really enjoyed recording that episode. So have a quick listen here where I talk about bastard search pattern, different types of fields and looking for choke points in your environment to help you figure out your search pattern. In the research article, there is this concept of the bastard search. Yes, I'll say it again, the bastard search. And it gets its title, which I thought was hilarious, from the scenario where somebody goes missing and all of a sudden the the authorities are called, a search party is issued, everybody's out checking everywhere, looking for this person, only to come back and find that the person has returned home. And essentially the bastard search is, the fact that the bastards after going home and, and we're out there looking for everybody, right? But essentially the bastard search is searching places that are obvious and places that the people or the person might go. So really we can use this in, in metal detecting. So there is the concept of the bastard search as well. To start with fields, right? And keep that bastard search pattern or bastard search methodology in your mind now for a second, right? But to start with fields, you've got different types of fields. You've got, well, I suppose, what pastures or hay fields, arable, which are either crops or fallow ground. You know, fallow ground is where they let the field go wild for a year just to, so the nutrients can return to the ground. And then you've got fields that are in permanent crop. And I suppose they're artificially fallowed with fertilizer and stuff like this. OK, so you've got three types of fields, pastures, arable and permanent crop. You also have to consider whether these fields were plowed or not. So really. Pastures or hay fields are not generally ploughed. A field is only ploughed if it has crops put into it. 
So if it is ploughed, the first thing to consider from a metal detector's point of view is, has the farmer ploughed that field every year in opposite directions to ensure that the, the soil isn't tipped over and tipped over and tipped over just to one side of the field? You'll end up with a, a field um, on the slant to one side. And of course, when that soil is flipped over and flipped over and flipped over over the years, obviously the fines will move to one side of the field. Now, most farmers will, like I said, alter that over the years. So they'll go from top to bottom one year, from bottom to top another year. They may even go uh, right to left and left to right in other years just to make sure the field is balanced. But generally, they will just go top to bottom and then bottom to top, right? But what this means is that a lot of your finds will actually move to the edges of the field. I know the ground is going to turn back, but you will end up over the years having small finds move to the edges of the field. And this is why you, you generally find a lot of detectorists, when they go to a field, they will do around the edge first. And this is because, you know, a lot of stuff naturally moves to the edge of the field when it's flipped up around like this. So essentially what's happening is the smaller items are turned over. They move up one ridge, I suppose, every year. And then the next year they come and turn them back, back over onto itself. However, some of those smaller finds do remain behind. And then the following year, some of them do remain behind. And it's almost like a filtering system where you do end up with a certain spread of finds at either edge of the field. That's the first thing on a field, really, before we get into any search patterns or anything like that, is to consider the, the direction of the plough on the field and how it impacts where your finds may be. So the first tip on a field is to search around the edges. Then you get into the bastard search pattern, which is looking for obvious areas where finds may be. Checking the topographic profile of the field, looking at the field from eye level. Is there a high? Is there an attractive high? People tend to gravitate towards a mound or whatever in the middle of a field. Or is there a, a low where animals may go or have been going over the years for watering or it might be an old Roman watering hole? You need to check the highs and the lows. The only way you can really do that is by looking at the field from an eye level. So this is another part of your bastard search is to look for the obvious. You have trees, hedges, gaps in hedges, gates, styes, essentially any access points to the field. These are all what's considered in search party parlance choke points. Check out the choke points of the field, the gates, the styes, the gaps in the hedges. This is naturally where people are going to exit the field. So you would need to search around those points. A bastard search pattern. <laughs> Up next is all the way back from November, episode 85, The Debt of Coin Shooting, a contentious episode because it's kicked up a little bit of conversation online around whether my opinion was valid or not. So have a listen here and, and let me know what you think yourselves. Is coin shooting a viable part of the hobby anymore? Is it dying away? In my experience, I'm definitely not finding as many coins when beach detecting and I have put this down to contactless payments. No longer are we walking about with a pocket full of beer change. Even our wallets have changed from needing a pouch to solely being designed to carrying cards. So I do believe the era of coin shooting is coming to an end. And that's a pity because it is coin shooting that gets the most people involved in the hobby till they can figure out their niche and focus on finds that suit that niche. However, it's not just contactless payments that are killing it. The design of the coin itself is accelerating the demise of this part of our hobby. Just like this weekend, coins are not designed anymore to last in corrosive situations and are no longer made from essentially unreactive alloys of silver or gold and are now, since the mid-60s, made in clad form. 
which is multiple layers of differing metals sandwiched between a core of copper with an outer layer of copper, nickel, alloy and zinc. If you've done any engineering work with metal, you know that you don't use join two differing metals as it leads to accelerated galvanic corrosion in one of the metals, especially in a corrosive environment. And this is why when you find a clad coin that has been in the ground a while, it has bulged a bit and it is falling apart from the inside out. With the adoption of the euro in 2002, European detectorists were tortured with what was called Nordic gold, which was the term used to describe the metal alloy that was used to produce our 10, 20 and 50 cent pieces. This is an alloy of 89% copper, 5% aluminium, 5% zinc and 1% tin, resulting in an iffy signal no matter what orientation, environment or detector you use. Our 1, 2 and 5 cent coins went to clad copper covered steel, which melt when they hit the ground. And our 1 euro to 2 euro coins are a bimetallic design with the inner being clad copper nickel and the outer consisting of nickel brass, all a nightmare to identify confidently. This is all nice information. However, what it means is that any spendies now result in two piles, one that can be spent and one that are too far gone and can't be spent, and begs the question, is it worth the time to dig them when there is a 50-50 chance it will be of any value? or even a coin. I think what both these points will result in is the days of going out finding a stack of spendies are going to fade into distant memory and coin shooting will become about finding coins from before the contactless era and even before the clad menace of the 1960s. So how does that change the hobby? Well, where do you go now? It might get to a point where going to your local park will be pointless unless you're looking for something other than coins. You may need to change your coin hunting technique to hunt for older coins, like focusing on high conductivity coins, knowing that it won't be worth digging a clad coin that are slowly being phased out. Coin shooting will move from the parks and picnic areas to the fields in the hope of finding something older. This means that in Europe, although plagued with contactless payment and a euro coin, we will have thousands of years of coins dropped to draw upon, which is good for us. However, I'm afraid coin shooting in the US may be a very different story due to the sheer size of the sample to draw from over a few hundred years. So what will coin shooting look like in the modern era? Well, like I said, you won't go to parks or sports grounds. The coins simply won't be there. So you'll have to go to either very highly populated areas or areas of long history well before the clad coin. Your test bed will have to have its clad coins removed in favour of higher conductivity silver alloy coins. And even your detector may no longer have park or coin mode and will struggle to identify modern coins as they drift further down the shit shoot of conductivity and your audio processing will become more important and more important for you to know the difference between an iffy 50 cent versus a 30% silver coin which will blow the earphones off your head. Even your mindset will have to change. Your level of patience will have to improve. How often do we find silver coins mixed in with the buckets of clads we find? Some people do well in this and some find one a year. Now take away all that clad. Do you have the patience to weather the silence between silver coins in a coinless, contactless era? And finally, my most popular episode of the podcast second year 
is my top five metal detecting hacks. So this was a, an, an early episode in the second year of the podcast back in April 2021. So give it a listen here and let me know if these hacks are still relevant. So to start at number one on the list, that would be profile switching. Long time listeners will remember the tech timeout, tech timeout on profile switching. But for the new and uninitiated, profile switching is a technique where you switch between programs or profiles, generally between your discrimination program and all metal mode. You use this technique in two ways. Firstly, on iffy targets. So on a good signal that audibly appears broken or intermittent, if you switch back to all metal mode, the iron portion won't be nulled out and you will hear it, giving you more information for that dig, no dig choice. For me, if I'm hunting coins or silver and get an iffy signal on a high tone, I switch to all metal mode, resulting in the iron signal grunt joining the audio party telling me that the signal may be a clad coin with an iron core. Another way to use profile switching is on a signal that is present in one swing direction, but non-existent in another direction when you move around it, or a signal that disappears when you dig the first clod of the hole if you aren't suffering from halo effect. Does it exist? There will be a good chance if you switch to all metal mode that the signal will pop up again, making it easier for you to pinpoint. And number two, speaking of pinpoint, I did talk about how I thought pinpoint mode worked in episode 54. While I fail to say that I wouldn't invest much time in using pinpoint mode at all, as it is quicker and more efficient to just straight up learn to pinpoint properly with just a coil and not use the pinpoint mode as a crutch. Believe it or not, the time you save from not having to switch to pinpoint mode and back again is substantial and a lot longer than using the wiggle method or the just positioning yourself 45 degrees to the initial beep method making sure to keep location note before you move. It'll take some time to get the hang of it, but once you do, digs per hour will increase. In number three, keeping on the pinpoint trip, my third hack has to do with pinpointers. Imagine the scenario. You get a shallow signal. You pinpoint it as per hack number two. You dig your hole, flipping over the clod. The shallow find is now out of the hole but now at the bottom of the clod closest to the ground. So technically deeper than it started out, but you could have used your pinpointer to isolate the signal prior to digging anything. All you have to do is once you have isolated the signal with your expertise level pinpointing, LA.2, just take your handheld pinpointer touching the ground where you've identified the location of the find. If the find is shallow in the ground, this will further help you isolate and speed up your recovery of the find. I try to remember to do this when my detector indicates that the find is shallow. And if my handheld pinpointer doesn't detect it, I know that if my detector says it's shallow and it's not, then it must be large iron. And sometimes this has saved me time in digging. Full stop. Big trees in number four. No matter where you are, in a desert, on a beach, in a park, on a field, if there's a big old tree about, then that will be a hot spot for you to search. People are naturally attracted and seek shade under trees in the heat or shelter in the rain or for a bit of slap and tickle, governor. <laughs> Bear in mind that the tree may have been there for 100 or 150 years and could have been full size for the last 100. Point of note that in warmer climates, trees tend to be smaller. So what looks like a young tree to you in Europe may be an old tree in warmer climates. Trees have huge potential as the ground underneath is nearly always barren of grass 
and has never been ploughed. So there is potential for old finds near the surface. But you can take this logic further. Look for trees or landscape that is out of the ordinary, like old fruit trees potentially indicating an orchard or old beehives sticking out at the side of a field. These are places to hunt. In number five, and this one hack, I'm sure I am the only one that does this. And that is bring a chopstick along with me. Wait for it. I bring a chopstick along with me for several reasons, but the main one being that wood is softer than metal and will not damage a find. So if I'm digging a hole and my pinpointing is off slightly, or perfect for that matter, but I see the find as soon as I plop out the clog, I will use my chopstick, it's now a half chopstick, to pry out the find with the assurance I won't damage or scratch it. I cringe all the time when I'm looking at hunts online and someone inevitably finds himself in the same scenario with the find in the side of the hole and the first thing they do is attack it with the shovel or trowel. To be honest, I only use this when I see something good in the hole, but I do also use it to lightly scrape some muck off or clean the find mid-hunt. Use it to clean connectors without fear of damaging anything. I have been known to use a chopstick when gridding a site also. Never mind catching flies with them. Danielson. And that's it, guys. Thanks for another year. Here's to the next one. I hope you like those highlights. Let me know if there's any highlights you thought I should have included, like take time out or where I break into song, um, <laughs> any of those episodes. But yeah, like I said, I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank our Patreons. I want to thank anybody who's bought me a coffee over the year. I want to thank anybody who's subscribed to me on YouTube. Just really, I want to thank everybody, anybody who's interacted with the podcast, giving me a review everything i really appreciate it guys and it really does spur me on to do bigger and better things next year so here's the year three good luck and happy hunting and we'll chat to you all again next week